So this week we're going to speak on abortion theory. Um, let's just pray. Father, we just love the way you meet with us. We love the freedom, the joy, the celebration. We love, Lord, just the, the things you do in our lives. I mean, it's just staggering, the mercy that you've shown us. And we just want to say thank you. Thank you for so faithfully meeting with us every week. Because in, in the Psalms, your condescension makes us great. And you condescend to come into this funny old room and meet with us and change our lives. And we just say, Lord, Lord, we're made great by that. Lord, you make us more like Jesus and you glorify us through condescending us. Touching us, Lord, you could so easily just snub us, you could so easily just ignore us, and it would be totally right, because you're God just so much beyond what we are, but Lord, you don't, and we'd say we love you, and Lord, help us to honour you, and help us to give you the glory that you deserve, Lord, help us to love you with every fibre of our being, thank you, that's what you want, Lord, more than anything else, we love you, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, there's a burning love, it's not full on cold, Lord, and somehow detached from the rest of our lives, but our whole right. being bursts in love for you, Lord. And we say we want to get to that place, Lord. We want to live yeah, in that place now. We know, Lord, it can't be accomplished so simply by effort, Lord, but only by your spirit. And so we wanted to make ourselves open to your spirit today. So, Lord, come and burn us with your passions and desires for your glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I'm very aware that as we look at this subject of abortion, it's a very painful subject. I'm very aware of that. Um, interestingly, although the subject of babies full stop is joyful, actually for many people it's painful. For, for couples that have been together for some time, married for some time, and trying their hardest to have a baby and trying to conceive and, and, and not being able to, and then it seems like there are other people that can't stop conceiving. And it's a painful thing. Look on in bewilderment in the sense of God, why, why us? Um, for people that have known the pain and the disappointment of miscarriage, and just the disappointment. Oh, we thought we were, we thought we were going to have a little one, and then not, or even more tragically, stillbirths and such things. For those who are single and just would love a family and to be a parent, but can't struggle to find a husband or a wife that they can make a family with, this can become a painful thing. Oh, look, that family's pregnant again. For those who have had an abortion, it's terribly painful. Or for those who are close to someone who's had an abortion, incredibly, incredibly painful. And so I'm obviously going to try and speak with humility and try and speak with honesty. Um, and my prayer really is that, is that where there is pain, that, uh, that, that healing touch from Jesus would come. Yeah? So, it's so, 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 so that the Lord can, can use what's said today to bring healing, to bring restoration. To, to, to come in. The bar, one, of the, one of Jesus' titles is the balm of Gilead. It's like he's that healing balm. He comes in. He, he even referred to himself as a physician, a doctor. So let's be in faith for that today. I'm going to look at abortion from four perspectives. Number one, individually. Number two, politically. Number three, ethically. Number four, spiritually. So let's start individually. Well, each situation where someone is in, finds himself wanting an abortion or having an abortion is obviously complex. Yeah, life isn't simple, is it? <coughs> Decisions are made, choices, choices, and everything. I mean, find ourselves in a position. Life is not simple, and if you if you think life is simple, you've probably been living in some kind of a bubble. You've been living in unreality. It's not simple. We're in a fallen world. We are complex creatures in and of ourselves. We sometimes do things that we don't want to do, and don't do things that we do want to do, and say things that we don't mean. And the list goes on. When people find themselves undesirably, undesirably pregnant, obviously one of the first emotions is fear, panic. 
you know, and that sense of, man, life's never going to be the same again. Mm-hmm. And actually, whatever you do in that situation, that's exactly right. Life will never be the same. Ever. The background, sometimes, to the situations, unwanted pregnancies, can be very, very tragic. Not always by any means, but sometimes very tragic. It can be an absent man, a violent man, another man, an unknown man. It can be a history of broken relationships. The woman herself could actually be trapped in the sex trade. She, she could have a past, but she's void of love, filled with abuse. She could have tense and fragile relationships with her wider family, volatile at any minute. No real sense of support and unconditional love. It could be the, the, the whole lifestyle of drug or alcohol abuse. Could be the other end of the social spectrum. Lots of money. Life looks good, but not much. Love, empty. Could be at work, do. Had a bit too much to drink. Ended up in bed with a colleague. Or actually, don't even remember what happened. Bit pregnant. Could be someone high flyer. Lots of dreams, ambitions, suddenly bang, pregnant. Career. Things been pursuing for years. Question mark. On hold for a year. Or on hold forever. And then there's the anger. It's alright for him. Yeah? You can imagine that. It's alright for him. He hasn't got he hasn't got to carry it, he hasn't got to make it decision. It's not his body. It's alright for him. With his advice. You know, all kinds of advice, eh? Of course you can just terminate. It's easy these days. In and out. And just get on with life. It's your life, it's your choice. It's not quite as simple as that. And I want to just take literally about two minutes to say a few words from one human to another. Number one, if you are here and you have had an abortion, you've had a termination, if you're listening and you've had a termination, no one in this congregation will look down on you as if we are somehow innately better than you. That won't happen. In a truly Christian congregation, there should not be one shred of self-righteousness. All our righteousness has been given to us as a gift from God as we believe in Jesus. That's why we enter into God's presence so boldly. That's the confidence. Not because we had a really good week and prayed 10 hours. It's because Jesus Christ is our righteousness. Yeah? So we're allowed in 24-7. <coughs> Hallelujah. What gospel? Secondly, I want to know the complexities and the pain involved with your situation is acknowledged by me as the pastor. And I hopefully can speak on behalf of us as a church that we acknowledge that. It's not easy to go through with an unwanted pregnancy, especially when you live in a society that makes it so easy for you not to go through. It's not an easy thing. But neither is it easy actually in reality to not go through it. There's no easy option. And thirdly, just to say we are happy to talk with you and happy to walk with you through the pain of it. And I would say, come and see myself in the game. We'd love, we, we're happy to do that. But if we find ourselves out of our depth, then we'll refer you to someone that is a bit more experienced and that, you know, will help you to connect with them, someone that you feel safe with, someone that you can love. Because we, you know, we don't have loads of experience, but we'd just love to help you get started on the road to healing and you know, transformation. Now really, to be honest, I'd love, I'd love for that to be everything I have to say today. And let's get back in praise. I'd love that. You'd be thinking, yeah, 10 minutes out, much better than last week. <laughs> <laughs> All nice. Because um, the other aspects are less comfortable. But the Bible says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. 
And so if we're followers of him, we've got to try and walk that. Okay? So my answer today is to try and be full of grace and truth as we look at this whole subject. The truth can hurt, especially if you're wounded. If you're particularly wounded in an area, you can just lash out and think, wow, you know, if you, someone, because you, you can feel like you're just going to, what you're saying here just makes me feel even worse about myself. But I want to say this, in God's economy, he never uses the truth to condemn, ever. He always uses the truth to open a doorway to healing and restoration. Yeah? I remember when I was at school and doing PE, they had these certain um, wooden horses, and some of them weren't allowed to use, and someone had written on, with marker on them, condemned. <laughs> basically meant, out They're no use to anyone. And sometimes we can, we can feel like we don't want to face the truth of things we've done, things we've done wrong, because you think, I know what it's going to mean. Basically, I know, I know how the story ends. God says, you, you know, God says you're not good enough, you've blown it. You know. That's not how the story ends. Amen? That's not how the story ends. It ends differently, because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. So it's a different end. But there is that moment where we have to acknowledge certain things. So I'd ask you to listen um, to what we have to say today and not be scared. Secondly, politically, I've asked Gemma, who works um, with CARE, who is a, a sort of a, well, I'll let you describe it, because I probably just get it wrong. But uh, she's in Parliament a lot, and she's kind of got her finger on the pulse with this whole embryos kind of things going on, different bills going through. So she's got a few minutes, just to, I've asked her just to share, just so we, we, we're, as a congregation, we're kind of aware, oh, this is where things are at politically, this is where the situation's got to. So Jenna, if you'd like to just come up now, and you can just speak into the mic for me, and just inform us. Thank you. Some scary reporting about Franken bunnies and the like. Um, it's animal-human <laughs> hybrids. 
for experimentation. Um, they keep it quite quiet, but sometimes it leaks out. Um, there's two kinds of hybrids that they're mainly looking at. Um, one of these is, sorry, it's quite jargony, but it's just I'm trying to give you as much of a real picture of what's going on as possible, um, is cytoplasmic hybrids. So what they do is they take a nucleus from a human egg um, and they put that into an animal cell. Um, so they claim that it would be 99 point something percent human, but what about the other percentage? And then they'd use that to experiment on, they'd develop it for a few days, a few weeks, um, and use it for research. Um, there's also proposals for true hybrids, um, which it says, basically a true hybrid is 50-50, um, either animal sperm and human egg, or animal egg and human sperm. And they want to start trying to bring that in for research as well. Um, which obviously poses massive issues for what is human when you start start messing around with that kind of thing. And um, the government report on this says that the bill will now bring the following interspecies embryos within the scope of the regulator, where licences may permit their creation, subject to the requirement that the project is necessary or desirable for the purposes described. So what is necessary or desirable when um, embryo research is so far yielding no cures for disease, it strikes me as possibly being something that's driven more by morbid curiosity than, than real medical ethics, but I, I don't know. Um, so, yeah, the, the one thing that Bill currently isn't allowing for in terms of embryos is reproductive cloning, which means literally just taking a person and cloning them, but it's a slippery slope and we're not sure where it might end up going. Um, so that's the first two. The third is what's called saviour siblings. I don't know if anyone's heard of this. Um, that's the other thing that's being proposed, whereby a couple's embryos who are, are taken and so they're screened, so they create several embryos using um, the man's sperm, the woman's eggs, outside of the body. Um, they screen them to find a genetic match for an existing child that's already sick. So the couple might have a child that they're desperate to see well again. Would I, I'm not a parent, but I'm sure that some of you here would just know the heartbreak of having an ill child. But what they're hoping to do is screen the embryos, throw away the ones that, um, that aren't a genetic match, and then they'll implant in the woman's womb the ones that are. Um, the child will be born simply to act as an organ donor or bone marrow donor for a child that is sick. Um, the joint committee that looked at this before it went to the Lords um, have changed the wording of this so that you can now um, create a saviour sibling for conditions that aren't just life-threatening but that are serious. Um, again, that's such an arbitrary term, what is a serious condition? I don't know. Um, and, and just think of it as well about the ramifications for a child that's created simply as a physical parts factory. What effect would that have on the child? What effect would that have when they don't manage to cure their older, older brother or older sister that they love, and then and they know that they brother or older sister that they love, and then and they know that they failed in the one thing that they were created for. And a parent might love the second child, but what is that love based on? What are the conditions of that love? So that's another thing that is set to become law. All of these things that pro pro life Christian and people have been campaigning against in the Lords, Lords that have been standing up against them, have been defeated consistently throughout the passage of the bill. Um, so it's not looking promising. Um, number four, 
um, threatens the very essence of family itself. It's um, the removal of the need for a father clause um, when it comes to donor-conceived children. So the potential is that lesbian couples um, would be able to have a child by IVF, um, artificial donation, um, and they would have no male name written on their birth certificate. It would be two female names. They wouldn't know who their biological father was. Um, the Science and Technology Committee, um, who meet as its MPs um, in, in the House of Commons cross party, they released a report in 2005 which said this, the requirement to consider whether a child born as a result of assisted reproduction needs a father is too open to interpretation and unjustifiably offensive to many. It is wrong to imply that unjustifiable discrimination against unconventional families is acceptable. Um, so you can see just within government the massive liberalisation of attitudes that is creeping in towards um, family, towards God's best for what a family should look like. Um, and it's wrong to discriminate against anything that isn't a nuclear family. Um, someone on the Joint Committee actually said of this, the removal of the need for a father, that the state is colluding in a deception. Um, if you think about the biological ramifications for children of not knowing not knowing um, their heritage, they, they might be prone to diseases, they might need to make lifestyle choices, they won't have that option. Um, in, socially, just the implications of not knowing their father and the distinctiveness of daddy, like where, where's that leading? And um, also social, it sounds um, crass, but um, often donor-conceived children, um, fathers, of well, men that donate sperm could donate likely in the same place. So you end up with children growing up in the same school, what happens if they want to start a relationship? You could end up with incestuous relationships happening that they don't know about, things like that. But, um, if you can't scream for that, then it's difficult. And finally, the fifth issue, which is what the main thrust of what Steph's talking about, abortion, um, which wasn't actually initially covered by this bill. Um, it's been brought in as an amendment, and it could go either way. So it's important to remember that not all is lost in terms of possibly what we might be hoping for. Abortion was legalised in 1967 in this country and since then there have been around 7 million abortions, babies aborted. Um, a pro-choice contingent is currently pushing for the limit of abortions to be brought back. So um, we'll push back so abortion can happen further into pregnancy, women can make a decision later and later on. Um, but we know that babies can survive outside of the womb. I think it's about 21 weeks, so don't quote me on that, but um, a baby can be aborted up to during labour, and um, for so much as having a cleft palate or a hair lip, um, which not many people know either. So that's the case currently. They're also pushing for um, getting rid of the right to object, for doctors to object to sign off on abortions, that's gonna be changed. And also some of the Science and Technology Committee want nurses maternity nurses to be able to carry out abortions as well. Um, but, on the other hand, there is a growing public opinion and also, look, there are people in Parliament campaigning for the tide to be reversed, for abortion not to be liberalised. Um, so all things to bear in mind, it's quite a bleak picture, um, but there are alternatives that are ethical that we can get behind. Things like um, adult stem cells, which involves using um, cells 
from an, from an adult who's fully consenting, it makes no difference to them. And there's actually over 70 cures that can be derived from adult stem cell therapy currently, but funding is not being put into it because people want to fund embryonic research, so that's something to bear in mind. Um, and umbilical cord blood as well, that's thrown away at birth. Um, I don't know how many of you that are mums here were told um, when you were pregnant that you could donate your cord blood. Um, which would just be thrown away, but that can be used to treat lots of illnesses, actually over 80 I think it is, um, and you can collect that for research as well, but it's just not being done. And then the MP that I work for is pushing this in Parliament, there's a bill going through, a private member's bill that he's done about that. Um, but just to finish, um, this is a topical issue. Um, there are campaign cards that I can get for you to send to your MPs about this kind of thing if you're interested. Um, but most of all, I think this is an issue that's in God's heart, and I think that it's being attacked in our country, and I think that we need to intercede for it, something that we can be on our knees about. And um, if you want to know any more, just come and talk to me at the end, I guess, and I can tell you some of the more ins and outs of things, but I hope that that's kind of a yeah, analysis. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> few more comments on the political side and we'll move on to the ethical side. So the earliest age currently for, of, of a, for a baby to survive outside the room is 20 weeks. It's getting younger and younger because of medical progress obviously. It causes difficulties because the general the general rule is this how, how the how the law is worded is this is that abortions are allowed um, up to 24 weeks with the permission of two doctors who say who would who, who agree that the pregnancy causes, the continuation of the pregnancy causes more physical or mental risk to the mum or the child than if it was not to proceed. Um, but um, where doctors agree that the, um, there are big, big abnormalities in the baby or that the woman, the mother's life is gravely threatened, then there's no time limit at all. But as we see these things are fairly, goalposts can move in terms of what is a serious abnormality, etc. Um, see, the criteria is very, very broad, so the doctors have to rely on their own judgment as to say whether, do we think that the physical or mental risk of you having this child is so great that you should terminate. Some doctors say the women are the best to make the decisions and, and, and therefore will refer every woman who chooses on the grounds that their mental health will be damaged by being forced to continue with the pregnancy. You see that logic? Um, that's, that's the call that some doctors make. Other doctors say that abortion is always safer, basically because pregnancy is a risky business. To be pregnant and have a child is a risky game, it really is. There's all, you know, all kinds of things can go wrong. So statistically, it is safer, if you want to put it that way, for the mother to terminate every time. And so on that front, you can always argue physically the risk is too great. Um, however, not all doctors go along this line. One doctor in 24% of practices refuse to refer their patients for abortions on the grounds of conscience. So one doctor in, in one in four um, practices do this. So what are some of the key stats worth knowing? In 2005, there were 186,400 abortions in England and Wales, um, and there were 645,835 births. So approximately 22% of pregnancies in England and Wales were aborted in 2005. That's between one in four and one in five. 1% of those abortions were due to the fact that the child was feared handicapped. 1%. 1 out of 100. Um, in the UK, 1 in 3 women will have an abortion during her lifetime. That's 500 per day. 
Now, when was abortion legalized? 1967. This was roughly the same time as radical feminization of feminism. Radical feminism uh, really hit the scene. I've got some quotes from a feminist uh, website here. Speech given in Dublin in 1992. Woman says this. I think it's a woman. <laughs> Uh, in the 1940s and 50s, the war had challenged stereotypes in the workplace. And so women began to enter the employment market in much larger numbers. It soon became apparent that some of the burden of family responsibility needed to be shifted onto the state. It soon became apparent that some of the burden of family responsibility needed to be shifted onto the state. Big statement. Together with trade unions, women fought hard for a welfare system which would provide this. This is perhaps one of the greatest achievements of the century. In the 1960s and 70s, she says this, these decades saw the radicalization of the feminist movement led by American women. The mass entry of women into the workforce and the pill changed women's traditional role in the family. Feminists demanded the right to abortion on demand, free childcare provision, and equal pay. In fact, a recent study undertaken by LSE, um, look, looking into factors that most improved women's lives since World War II, um, showed that contraception and, in quotes, safe abortions topped the list. So what we see here in reality is that the feminist movement has, a, is a, has been a huge influence on the legislation of abortion, but not only that, the ideology behind it, the kind of arguments and the kind of thinking that we immediately get into when we start thinking about um, abortion. I looked at one of the top pro-choice organisations, pro-choice are those that are really you know, for uh, women to be able to choose to have abortion on demand, pro-life is the term given to those who would be arguing um, for a, a different stance. And one of the, this is the, the slogan of the top UK's pro-choice organisation, your body, your life, your choice. Now the concern for me here in reading this is this, rather than a sense of man alive, isn't this whole thing awful? Which I think really, regardless of whether you believe abortion should be legalised or not, the thing is awful. Regardless of where you come down in terms of, it's just a tragic thing. I think, I think universally, we should all just be able to say, this is really, really sad. But instead of that attitude, there's much more of a, def a defiant stance of, it's all about my choice as a woman. And don't you dare contradict, question, or try and teach into that, especially if you're a man. Well, today I'm going to contradict, question, and teach into it. Because whether or not it's right to legalise abortion, it's certainly wrong to celebrate it. And as I uh, listen to this from a protest website, support abortion rights. Show your true colours and wear a T-shirt or badge, declaring, "I am the pro-choice majority." Perfect for the gym or a thoughtful gift. In case you're interested, the badges are a pound and the t-shirts are ten pounds. <laughs> I want to ask us as Christians, do we, should we be aligning ourselves with the values of those who are the driving force behind this whole thing? We need to ask some, I think there's some questions to be asked of us and our sponsors. I mean, while ships travel down to the Antarctic to try to intercept the Japanese whalers, and while other people give their life to opposing animal experiments, we need to ask the question, what about the 500 English and Welsh sons and daughters that are aborted every day? And this must bring us on to the ethics of the matter. Is it right? 
What's being said about abortion is this. It's morally complex. It's morally, it's a minefield, it's morally complex. I want to say to you today, in the main, it isn't. And I'm going to demonstrate that in the next few minutes. In the main, it's not complex. Is it emotionally complex? Absolutely. Gosh. I mean, just very, very much so. Is it morally unclear? I think sometimes yes. When you find a, a woman who's lovingly carried a child and suddenly her life is in danger in a very serious way medically and it's linked in with the pregnancy, suddenly it's morally unclear. You have to choose between the life. That's tough. Absolutely. But in the main, as a rule, I don't believe it is ethically, morally complex. And I believe legislation should be decided on the rule rather than the exception. Yeah? Otherwise, where do we go? I want to illustrate this by looking at the subject of murder for just a few minutes. Murder is emotionally complex. You find that most people that have been murdered by someone knew that person. And if you go to court and listen to cases and read the papers, you often find that the person who did the murder felt injured or hurt in some way by that person. And the resentment may have built up over years. So they, you know, they, all kinds of things may have happened, and so there's a sense in which, ah, and it bubbles over, and they kill the person. Most people that are murdered, they knew the person that killed them. It's emotionally complex. Let's think about, let's use an example of a woman who married for 20 years, abused by her husband, beaten by her husband, cheated on time and time again by her husband, neglected by her husband, mistreated in every way by her husband, humiliated, put down, unloved, neglected, beaten. And then she just, she just, after 20 years or so, she just blowed it some poisons in. Now, I've read stories like that, and you know, as I read it, I thought, that's tough. You know what, you think, oh, that's not straightforward. That's, you know, you just feel, man, I mean, there's a sense in which you feel, she shouldn't have done it, but you feel for her, you feel sympathy. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, she's not just me. <laughs> you, think, you know, you think, man, that's a tough situation. But do we then conclude that murder is a morally grey area? Do we conclude, well, murder is like that, it's morally grey, is it? No, it is the nation's most seriously punished crime. Now, what's going on here? Why is abortion any different? There's only one issue that makes it potentially different, and the issue is this, when does human life begin? But if it does begin at conception, we'll look at that in a minute, then it's no different. It's murder in God's eyes. It's no different. Because the argument for saying murder is morally complex is exactly the same as saying abortion is nuts. It's not the case. So when does human life begin? Well, if you want to talk genes for just a moment, at conception, this little ball of cells, or how you want to describe it, this uh, fetus, this zygote, zygote, sorry, as they call it, zygote, sorry, um, has 46 chromosomes that are distinct, distinct from his or her parents. So genetically speaking, from the moment of conception, this little thing is no longer part of the, the mother's body, genetically. It's different. It has its own DNA. Different from the mother, different from the dad. Then what happens is that the fertilised egg, this fetus, this zygote, travels down whichever fallopian tube it was hanging out in and uh, comes down into the uh, uterus, otherwise known as the womb, and, um, and it takes about five to eight days to get there. So it's pretty slow swimming going on, but it gets there in the end. And then it attaches itself and embeds itself into the wall of the womb. 
three weeks in, so three weeks after conception, the heart begins to beat. Six to seven weeks after conception, the brain waves begin to operate. Nine to ten weeks after conception, the thyroid and adrenal glands begin to function. Twelve to thirteen weeks in, after conception, um, full fingernails, able to suck the thumb, able to recoil from pain, and just very unset of fingerprints, um, just needs a bit of time. Now, I remember when we went to see Daisy when, in, when she was in the, in the womb, um, at 12 weeks old. And uh, so we went along. Now, bear in mind, at 12 weeks, there's no fluttering, there's no kicking, there's no, there's no sense of, you know, you're just taking, you're just believing the little test of the blue lines, you're thinking, okay, we're pregnant. But there's nothing else really to say in terms of the physical sensation. You just say, okay, we, we, we're just going to believe you're in there. So, oh, you've been sick and everything, but yeah, you, you, that was all right. That's it. <laughs> right. So we get there, so the jelly goes on and the thing's like, and they put the, put the ultrasound thing on, and you're looking, and then suddenly there's this kind of little kind of sack type thing. You think, what the heck's that in there? <laughs> now, 12 weeks old, she's bouncing. Right, so she's doing this, so she's crouched down, during the internet, sorry, she's crouched down, she's booming up to the top of the sack, you see, because at that age, they have quite a lot of room in the sack, because they haven't filled it by any means. But it's just loads of water, it's kind of like being at Centre Parks, but like, you know, Weeks on end. So she's <laughs> and bang, bang up to the top, and then whizzing down again. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's my little baby. Twelve weeks in. That was, like, it was just a joyful, joyful moment. And then the next scan is just odd. Oh, they're saying that's the brain, that's the thumb. You think, oh, I don't know what you're on about, but I'll take your word for it. Actually, funny enough, <laughs> twenty weeks down with Daisy, I showed her so I thought, isn't that right? <laughs> I said, look, it might sound silly, but this you got eyes. Just these black holes. I said, "There are eyes there." She looked at me like I was some sort of idiot. You know, it was. Uh, yeah, she's got eyes, but uh, yeah. anyway. So, twelve weeks in now. The the difficulty is obviously that at this stage when we saw Daisy, um, the mother legally still can has twelve weeks, just under three months. If she wants to, if she feels that she can go through with it, to to abort the child. Um, so we have to ask, well, when does life begin? If you can bounce around in a sack, I mean, you know, it's evidence. But, you know, I mean, when does life begin? You begin to look at this. Some say, life, you can only really say life begins when, when the baby is ready to sustain itself. But that is so flawed. Um, why? Because I think if I was to leave my kids at home, my oldest one, six and four, during lunchtime, they'd struggle to know what to do. You know? I mean, when does when can, when is it get able to sustain itself? I mean, obviously, uh, clearly not for the first um, couple of years of its life. Um, a legislation doesn't really attempt to answer this, it focuses more on the rights of the one who's definitely alive. Sort of understand the logic there, but I think we've got to answer it. Um, and Christians tend to vary from the very conservative, all birth control is wrong, you know, the, the sperm and the egg even separately, you know, is, is, is sacred life, to, to much more liberal. We need to kind of work out where do we go here. Biblically, I believe it's impossible to argue, um, I believe biblically, we'll look at that later, that, that, that um, it's not a life. Um, okay, let me just try and phrase this in a more helpful way. Because of the way the Bible talks about the way God knits us together in our mother's womb, I would say that, from the, I would say that it's, it's impossible to argue that, that any time after the implantation of the fertilized egg into the womb, um, it's impossible to say, I think, biblically, you know, with integrity, that it's okay to abort. So, um, so a lot of times the discussion is around, okay, this, this, this fertilized egg is traveling through the through the tube for that five to eight days, 
but between that point and implanting, embedding it into the womb, is it a person then? But we'll, we'll try to um, look at that. This will affect what kind of contraception that you use. If you believe that at the point of conception, um, it's a person, then you won't want to use the morning after pill. You won't want to use the pill. Because part of what the pill does is that it, it aggravates the lining of the womb, which, 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 um, which makes it difficult for the uh, fertilized egg to embed into the womb. And also you don't want to use the coil. Because the core, among other things, also makes it difficult for the fertilised egg to actually embed into the womb. So it does. It makes it, it's important to know when you believe life starts, because it will affect the kind of contraception that you uh, go for and use when you get married. Um, you don't, if you don't want, if you don't have children straight away, but there's nothing wrong with having children straight away either. Um, okay. Now, uh, I, <laughs> we're still in the ethics. We've got to look at the whole rape victim thing. We've got to because it's one of the things that comes up most often. Now I hesitate on this one for very obvious reasons. I'm a man. 99% um, of rapes is men against women, and uh, and so therefore uh, it's, it, it's, it's such a disgusting uh, thing. It's crying, just disgraceful. And sometimes women say, "Gosh, you even begin to even go there." But well, I'm going to. Um, I'm feeling embarrassed, but we've got we've got to do it. I can't fathom for a minute what a violated woman would feel like after such a thing. Can't fathom. But then to discover after that that she's pregnant, I mean, you know, I can just imagine that it feels too much to bear, without a doubt. Um, uh, and whatever I say in the next five minutes, I could probably be, be charged with being an idiot simply because I'm a man talking about it. That's fair enough. I'll, I'll take that. I've been helped by the fact that I have a friend who experienced this, um, who, who was raped and um, went through with the pregnancy. I mean, it wasn't as straightforward as that. I found myself. At one point in an abortion clinic, but did a U-turn, just you know, just uh, trauma. But had the child um, delights, delights in her child. But, but for me, it was, it, it's been a helpful thing, obviously, just on lots of levels. But on one level, just saying it's not a foregone conclusion. But if that happens, well, then you just must. Which I think people say that, and I thought, well, not necessarily. And we'll look at some of the arguments used. Um, I don't think some people say, well, look, it's just going to be a constant reminder. For that woman, constantly, the whole of her life, she has that child of what happened. Um, but what are we saying? As if, as if she would just forget that she had an abortion. As if it would just it would be as if it didn't happen. As if, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. That argument doesn't work. Some say, well, no, no, no. It's just. She has the baby, the guy's like, he's, 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 he's achieved double damage. Not only is he violated her, he's caused us to go through, he's caused us to go through this, this pregnancy. And I say, well, either way, it's double damage. Either way. To violate and just to go through with an abortion and all of that. It's not, we've got to get our heads, it's not the easy one. We've got to understand that. It's not the easy one. Long term. It's not. Well, I could say this, it might sound terribly crash. You think, oh man, but I'll say it too long to make a lot. We teach our kids that because it's a sound moral principle. They don't. They don't. And although to actually apply that emotionally, I just wouldn't even want to go there. I'm just saying we've got to be able, we've got to have a moral framework. Otherwise, we end up making decisions in all kinds of areas of life simply. But well, that's how I felt. Well, we've got to not, We've got to be able to say, does it make it right? It works in the playground, but I believe it works in adult life as well. And I'm going to say this as well. Does the child deserve? And you might say, I can't believe you played that part. So 
emotionally manipulative to even say that. But you see, here's the thing with this whole issue, and this brings us right back around now to the whole ethical issue on abortion. The children are defenseless. They are. They can't even speak. And I want to ask you, if someone doesn't say something, who's going to say something? If you're going to be silenced by feminist intimidation, where does that leave the kids? Where does it leave them? It's a central issue. Christians are called to stand up for the vulnerable, the needy, and the oppressed. If 500 of our children are being killed daily and not spoken up for by Christians, then the most needy group in the nation is without a Christian voice. It's not right. We must be the voice. We must say, give them a chance. Give them a chance. And it might be crude to say, but the honest truth is this, if I discovered that I was a product of a rape, I'd still be glad I was given a chance to live. Because I believe in a God who redeems, a God who turns things around. A God who doesn't, doesn't break into a life regardless of how nice our upbringing was or whatever, he just comes in and has mercy. And he can make a glorious life, have a terrible beginning. A terrible beginning. And I honestly believe, the same way we look at the African slavery, we look back at African slavery and we think, we disbelief. How could we allow that to have gone on? How could we have been so blind? How could we have been so passive? How could Christians have been so theologically unrobust to let that, that blight on our nation's conscience continue for so long? I believe we will look back at this episode in history and say exactly the same thing. How could we have just... It's controversial, don't say anything. No. No. It's wrong. It's wrong. It's bad. The Lord will certainly ask us. He'll certainly ask us, won't he? Let's look at spiritually. What does God think? Well, look, as Christians, let me just say, we're happy with true science. We love true science, all right? So Christians aren't clean on to the fact that the stalks bring the babies and the earth is flat, all right? We love science. We love DNA genes. Give us it. It's great, all right? It's all God. But we also love the invisible, mysterious, divine hand in the womb, yeah? Hallelujah! He's gone to work. God's gone to work. He's making a little something in there. He's cooking it up. He's knitting it together. We love that, don't we? Yeah. I love it. It's beautiful. The Bible presents God's efforts as hands-on, in the womb, care-filled, detailed, much attention given to detail. This is King David. You formed, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame, my little frame, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eye saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. The question may be asked, who are you, a man, to interrupt the work of God? Who are you, a man, to interrupt I would, I would sooner interrupt Michelangelo painting the Sistine Chapel. Or the Queen at breakfast. You know, or Davina in the shower. Then, then God knitting together. Knitting together. In, in the woman, knitting together, making. I would sooner interrupt anything than that. He's a work, isn't he? Isn't that what the Bible says? It's the Bible's world. This is how the Bible presents such things. The thought of interrupting him in the midst of his unique craft, fashioning, embroidery. Piecing together in that little peaceful chamber takes a boldness and an irreverence beyond the path. 
I've got some little quotes from some theologians, but I'm going to cut them out because of time. But I'm going to just give you one. Listen to this. On a, in a book entitled Lectures on the Sacred Poetry of the Hebrews, written in the 18th century, Robert Lowth writes this. One is, he refers to the verse first of all, when I was born in a secret place, when I was wrought with a needle in the depths of the earth, he says this. The art of designing a needlework was wholly dedicated to the use of the sanctuary and by a direct precept of the divine law chiefly employed in furnishing a part of the priest's clothing, cloak, and the veils for the entrance of the tabernacle. The suggestion here is this, is that King David is connecting the furnishing of, of God's dwelling place in the old covenant, he's connecting that with the fashioning of God's dwelling place in the new covenant. Hallelujah. So in the old covenant, that's where God dwelt in a tent. Needlework was exclusively in that culture, just for the priest's clothes and for the entrance. And it's like, let's get it right, this beautiful, wonderful, because it's where God's going to dwell. And exactly the same way King David is deliberate. So here we go, God's going to work, I'm going to knit together a a living stone so my presence can dwell in there. Isn't it beautiful? Yeah. Because in the new covenant, God dwells in us, doesn't he? He doesn't dwell in a tent anymore or a temple, but dwells in our hearts. Praise the Lord. There are various phrases and stories and passages in the Bible that make it clear children are a blessing from the Lord. The concept of children as an inconvenience or an interruption is alien to a Bible worldview. You could argue actually that without sin and you know and all that all into doing that in the mission winning people, the, the original idea was just have loads of kids and enjoy yourself. That was God's mandate. God loves them. He loves children. I've got loads of quotes from the Bible, but again, I, we haven't got time to go through them. But it basically says, kids are great, have loads. Okay, it's the bottom line. So the Bible is a revelation of God delighting in babies, God delighting in children. But in the same book we're introduced to Satan, malicious, vehemently opposed to all that God is for. I'm going to conclude with this. It's a bit unsettling, but there we go. Jesus spoke, speaking to the Jews who were against him, said, This you're of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth. For there's no truth in him when he lies. He speaks out of his own character. He's a liar, and the father of lies. Satan's nature is to, is, to, is to murder and to lie, and he plays by his own rules. He's under God's sovereignty, but he's empowered by our agreement. So if we fall away from God and following God and obeying him, we open the door wide for the evil one to come in. There aren't three sides, God, devil, and neutral. It's God and the devil. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. So you turn away from God and say, I'm going to do my own thing. You're not actually doing your own thing, ultimately. Ultimately, you're serving the kingdom of darkness. And so as soon as you say, no, God, thank you. Your Bible's out of date. We'll set up a site on our own little way of doing things. Bang. You go, bosh. Come in. That's what you do. Very, very sober. In the Old Testament, when God's people did this, when they backslid, they returned to three gods particularly. Number two, the first two gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, those gods were fertility gods and they required just masses of sexual immorality, all kinds of degraded sexual stuff. And the idea was, was that as you, as, you, as, you, as you did this, it kind of enhanced the fertility brought by the gods and the ground would grow. It's basically sort of pagan kind of stuff. But the third god was Molech and he required the sacrificing of children through the fire. That was his requirement. In Leviticus 18, 21, 20 verse 2 and 20 verse 3, this practice was condemned and punishable by death. And in fact, in Leviticus 20 verse 4, if God's people turned a blind eye, they were to be cut off and banished. If they turned a blind eye to this kind of thing going on. Let's read Psalm 106. This is God's anger at what his people have done. Against the Jews, it says this. They didn't... Is it hot in here? You guys are still awake. Those of you that are still awake, well done. Fair play, yeah. Fair play, yeah. If you fall asleep, just listen to it on the internet later, in the, in the cool of your fridge. But uh, if you want to stay awake, you feel free to stand up and walk around at the back. It's fine. I won't be offended by it. It's fine. Okay. We, we've probably got about another eight minutes, okay? 
Yeah, it's alright. I want to get this is huge. They did, so God tells the Jews off, they did not destroy the peoples, the Canaanites, as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, when they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. They became unclean by their acts and paid the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. I want to suggest to you today that spiritual realities do not change. Times change, phrases change, outlooks change, but nothing really changes. Now what you find is that pro-choice people are generally secular, and um, so they will find what I'm about to say comic, laughable. My response, well the father of lies isn't silly, he lies convincingly. He knows how to make things look real clever and really like they make sense. He's happy if people are laughing. He doesn't mind if people don't get it. As long as destruction and deception are taking place, he is very happy with this. And he's accomplishing both. I want to put it to you through abortion. There are four key words I want to point out from the above passage. Number one, sacrifice. What does it mean to sacrifice? It's to give up something of worth to gain something of greater worth. And that's the main pro-choice argument. That you sacrifice something of worth for something of greater worth. My body, my life. My choice. It's a sacrifice. It's all about you. It's all about you, your life. You pursue, you pursue your dreams. You go for that. It's all about you. After all, it's all about you. The other thing of greatest importance, sacrifice your children on the altar of self-love. Next phrase, sons and daughters. You see, the problem with words like fetus is that it can dehumanise the whole thing. Your sons and daughters are being killed. Every one of those 500 a day, someone's son, someone's daughter, would have gone up into a man or woman. God had a plan for them. To demons. And the Bible's clear that idols are nothing, they're man-made, but the Bible also talks about the fact that behind those idols and those images, demons love to just kind of situate themselves there and to control and manipulate people through that false worship. So it suggests here that abortion, though unwittingly, is an offering to demons. They delight in it. You only have to know some of the procedures which I read about last night, the procedures of abortion. I won't read them here, it will be fair. I can point you to the websites if you want to know. It's an absolute horror. It's an absolute horror. You can see his murderous hand. And finally, innocent. You can't do that, the babies are innocent. Do I believe in original sin? Yeah. Do I believe we inherit sin through Adam? Yeah. Do I believe babies are innocent? Yeah. Absolutely. You're an idiot if you don't think so. What have they done to deserve? What have they done to deserve such untimely and horrific death? Nothing. They've done nothing. You're innocent. God sees it as satanic and he hates it. So where do we go from here? Is it enough to change the laws? Well, that's a good thing. Good to pray for that. And get behind that. I'm a passionate advocate for the whole laws thing being changed, but it's only part of the answer. We need a move of God, don't we? We need a sweeping move of God where on mass millions of hearts get changed by the Holy Spirit's power. Rapists, immoral, pimps, prostitutes, traffickers, the trafficked, the vulnerable, the doctors, the feminists, all converted. Amen?
all come to know the Lord, all get revolutionised by the gospel, bang, you think, ah, oh, be brought out of the deception, whatever various framework of thinking the demons have set up, brought out of it, bang, into the truth. Oh, I see it now. Hallelujah. Let's celebrate life. Yeah? It's a beautiful thing. Let's celebrate life. Only Jesus can do that, but he intends to use the church. I've got no grand plan to put before you, no strategy, no points and arrows on it about how we're going to do this. But I want to say this to you, listen to him. Yeah? He will speak to you about this. Listen to the still, small voice. Allow yourself to be angry. It's alright. Bible says be angry. So don't sin. Be angry. The church, when it's lost its ability to get angry, has lost something huge. Every now and then you've got to make yourself a wicked cause and go in and turn some tables on it. You've got to do it. It's got to be right. It's got to be led by the Spirit. It's not out of control. The church needs to rediscover its righteous anger. Maybe in this room there's not the Wilberforce or Booth or Pullinger that's going to shape governments and nations. Maybe there's not. But I tell you, there's many in this room called to make a difference among their friends, their family, and whatever sphere God has called you into. Don't wait for permission from me. Listen to him. And if he's speaking to you, I'm not going to get in the way. Alright? I'll do all I can to encourage you and spur you on. So that maybe together with the rest of the church and the nation we can start to turn this very small but very, very influential nation. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have done the three-week dastardly series. <laughs> it's been horrible. It's been horrible preparing. Yes. Uh, um, you know, but we don't want to be shut up, do we? We don't want to just sidestep everything a little bit. Don't do that one. Let's just, you know. We've got to sing and celebrate and have a joy of the Lord, but we've got to hit the things that I need hitting on. Yeah? Bang. Whack them. For the glory of God. And with a heart full of love and grace. With a heart full of love and grace. We are, we've all sinned, haven't we? We've all fallen short. It's only by Jesus that we've been made right again with God. If you are affected personally by anything I've said today, listen, I love you. God loves you. We love you. We don't think, we, if you come and share us, we might think, oh, how can you do such a thing? We think, man, I would think, there by the grace of God. God bless us. Yeah, we love you. There's healing. There's transformation. There's God will touch your heart and bring blessing. Remove the guilt. Remove the shame and bring his arms around you. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. The door that opens up that someone's painful into the truth, walk through it. It's not a bad thing when you get through. It's beautiful. Life to the full. Hallelujah. We're going to do bread and wine now. Dave, and then we're going to just sing.